Hello and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 122nd episode, our guest is Jason Stanley. Jason Stanley is the Jacob Urosky Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Before coming to Yale in 2013, he was Distinguished Professor in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers University. Stanley is the author of Know-How, Languages in Context, Knowledge and Practical Interests, which won the 2007 American Philosophical Association Book Prize, and How Propaganda Works, which won the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy from the Association of American Publishers. His first book, Knowledge and Practical Interests, won the American Philosophical Association Book Prize, awarded to one philosopher every year for the 2005-2006 period. He is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Review, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, among other publications. Stanley lives in New Haven, Connecticut with his family. His new book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, was released on September 4th. And now, on to the show. Hello. Jason. Rob. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. Good to speak to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for taking the time this morning. I appreciate it. Uh, it's my wedding anniversary, no less. What? Congratulations. Yeah. That's awesome. Which one? 17. Wow. Okay. We just got done with our eighth, so we're not quite there yet. Kids. <laughs> uh, Kids. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but for those people who are listening who don't know who you are, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself here. Uh, my name's Jason Stanley. Uh, I'm the Jacob Yurofsky Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Okay. And uh, I'm reading your book, uh, How Fascism Works Now, and uh, it's it's a great book, and uh, it's one of those books where I want to keep underlining things, but I realize if I started doing that, I'd be underlining like the entire book, because uh, <laughs> it, it definitely brings together a lot of things that I've kind of thought about over the years, but I've never seen them kind of articulated in one place, so it's, it's good to kind of have that, and you have that historical perspective, too, on a lot of these things, which is which is helpful, so. Thank you. But it's, it's it's important to put our time in a global and temporal context. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it seems like the trends you describe in this book were, were taking place even if you're not counting Trump. Obviously, this, this book is super prescient because of the times we live in now. But um, do you think you still would have written this book or a book like it if it was President Hillary, Hillary Clinton? Well, I think that there are international trends that underscore the importance of these ideas. And I think that these ideas are are permanent. I mean, we find in the history of philosophy, we find warnings about what we now see all the way back to Plato in the Republic, mm-hmm. who warns that democracy will lead immediately to tyranny because a demagogue will will uh, set fear, uh, stoke fear among the populace against a foreign group or an internal enemy and thereby come to power. So in some sense, the themes are eternal, as it were. Mm-hmm. But whether or not I would have set aside uh, the time I took <laughs> uh, to set aside for this work, uh, that is, uh, and, and written it exactly as I did, that would probably have been different had it mm-hmm. been President Hillary Clinton. Sure. Well, I mean, there are trends all over the world that are not just Trump. Of course, we had Brexit, um, and, you know, you've got this far-right 
surge in, in Europe that, that seems to be, uh, I don't know, maybe cresting, hopefully, but it seems like it's, it's certainly on the rise in some places. But it seems like it's more of a trend more than just Trump. So it's a, I think it's a mistake to focus too specifically on Trump because this is a larger issue that's it, happening all over the world. So. It is absolutely right. And I first, uh, I first started noticing the trend when I was teaching a summer school at Central European University in Budapest. Mm. I, I taught it in 2009 and 2010. And originally, the preface to the book began with, uh, with that experience, where 2009, Hungary was a flourishing liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. When I got there in 2010, I remember seeing a poster on the wall, and uh, it was a poster of St. Stephen with holding a menorah standing over a map of Hungary. And I asked a Hungarian friend, what does that poster say? And he said, Hungary will not become another Palestine. Mm. And so in a year with Orban's election, I saw Hungary rapidly transition from uh, a glowing symbol of Western liberalism into this fear-mongering, frightened place uh, where the refugee crisis of 2015 just was was fit right into place, like clicking into a puzzle. Mm-hmm. I mean, you saw Orban set up the whole country for par- in this paranoid politics and fear of globalists and cosmopolitans and, you know, that fear that the traditional way of life was being extinguished by Western liberalism and feminism and, uh, and traditional Hungarian values were being extinguished. And for a while, it sort of like kicked along. But then when the refugee crisis happened in 2015 due to the Syrian war, or Bond's politics suddenly suddenly went global. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I've personally been hesitant to use the word fascism to describe the current political climate because you know I've read things where people are like, oh, you know, that's a very specific term that you know has very specific meanings, and there's uh, you know certain aspects of it that don't necessarily fit this because of course it came up in Italy in in the 30s or whatever. But then it's like you make the distinction in your book here about the difference between straight up just fascism and fascist tactics, and you go back and like you were saying this goes all, all the way back to Plato and stuff, but you, you even reference like the Confederacy um, and other things throughout history that, you know, they would, in their own time wouldn't have even called themselves fascists because that wouldn't have been a word, but it's still the same, you know, the same, people don't change that much, you know, over time. So. Right, and I wouldn't, I and I think it is an anachronistic to read fascism, the full modern construct back into Confederacy, but certainly elements of the Confederacy mm-hmm. strongly influence 20th century fascism. I mean, Hitler wanted the Ukraine to be like the antebellum South with Slavs as enslaved uh, people with large German plantations. Uh, You find the mythology of the Confederacy even now being spoken about in very ethno-nationalist terms. Even when, when people falsely deny that the Confederate, that the Civil War was about slavery, they'll say things like, uh, the homeland was being invaded by foreigners, mm-hmm. you know, which is an ethno-nationalism. And at the basis of fascism is ethno-nationalism. Mm-hmm. So now ethno-nationalism in and of itself is not all of fascism. That's just one element, but it's an awfully important element. And certainly we find that element predated and prefigured in a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, all over the world. 
Yeah, yeah. It's always kind of hidden in their language, too, when they're talking about, oh, our heritage. It's like, who's our? What does that mean? Like, (laughs) not maybe your, but not our. (laughs) So um, now you're a professor and, you know, you talk a little bit about this book about free speech and stuff. And and obviously there's been some controversy over free speech on campus. Um, And I do think it's it's interesting how, you know, these these uh, far right people are always crying about free speech, but it's really just a means to an end. It's like they're using democratic means to achieve achieve undemocratic ends, basically. Right. Um, and so you yourself had a brush with this when you posted something on Facebook, uh, kind of responding to a homophobic speech that was said. And, uh, you know, I guess what's your whole take on that uh, free speech controversy on campuses here? Uh, well, uh, I think there are gen- people genuinely worried about preserving academic freedom, and I'm one of them, and, and free speech. But uh, on the other hand, I think most of of the debate is uh, is hysteria intended to to weaponize uh, weaponize valuable concepts like free speech against things like protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when when for instance the Missouri student protests were represented as anti free speech, that was just befuddling. How is it that a bunch of African American students who are talking about systematic rape, racism and protesting, and for instance the Missouri football team, black members of the Missouri football team who who wouldn't play unless these issues were addressed? How is that contrary to free speech? It just seemed you know to represent protests as violations of free speech. Um, is is problematic, uh, and I'm not speaking about the protests that shut speakers down. I mean, I'm critical of that as a strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I think that to a, to a large extent, the free speech. I mean, the Portland far right rallies are called free speech rallies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeremy Joseph Christian, the, the to take an extreme example, the uh, the white terrorists who who murdered two people on a on a train when who tried to stop him from yelling anti-Muslim epithets at uh, two young women. Mm-hmm. Uh, said free speech or die in the courtroom. He said free speech or die. <laughs> this is America. So, uh, so I think that um, I think that what's the the uh, the right wing media. Uh, there's a whole sort of ecosystem of right wing media now that is targeting left wing professors for supposed left wing idea uh, uh, ideological. Um, indoctrination on campuses. And they're employing a system of uh, newspapers, like online venues, like Campus Reform, Turning Points USA. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to to catch professors saying something on Twitter or Facebook, and then shame them and bring harassment onto them. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, in the best case scenario, have them fired. Uh, now, of course, that doesn't work given the protections of tenure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so in my situation, for my regrettable and inopportune comment on a private Facebook page, for which I regret, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, although there were weeks and weeks of harassment that was difficult on my family, it didn't. Uh, obviously, Yale protected my uh, my free speech rights, uh, uh, but adjunct professors are getting fired. Uh, left and right. Um, and it's not just, and all this focus on universities, I mean, if you think about it, universities are the place that host the freest expression. Mm-hmm. I mean, in as Elizabeth Anderson has argued in her book, Private Government, in 
in ordinary, like ordinary citizens who post on Facebook and Twitter, they can be fired by their employers for nothing, you know, for, for the speech that for for non-professional speech and on social media. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, unquestioned, and uh, and no one raises a hullabaloo about that. So why is it that campuses are so harshly targeted? I think campuses are so harshly targeted because you actually do have free speech there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and you kind of mentioned that these, these far-right people wrap themselves in the, in the, the free speech mon- moniker, but uh, it reminds me of this propaganda poster I saw from early in the, the Nazi era. It was a drawing of Hitler with a, some tape over his mouth, and the caption was like, why won't they let this man speak? You know, like, well, let him right. talk. <laughs> My 2015 book, How Propaganda Works, begins with a quote from Joseph Goebbels. Uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, um, it, it will be the greatest joke of democracy that its freedoms led to the victory of its worst enemy. Mm. And what he meant was freedom of speech. So when, I, when I'm talking about the free speech issue on campus, or elsewhere. First of all, I think it's very weird to talk about to separate off campuses from the rest of the world. Obviously, campuses are being targeted because campuses are always targeted in an authoritarian moment. Mm -hmm. These are bastions of liberalism. That's why campuses, uh, universities are being targeted in Eastern Europe right now. So, uh, but uh, but secondly, this tactic of using free speech to advance illiberal ends is, when put in global context, it's classic. It's 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 just it's exactly what happened in the twenties and thirties in Germany. Uh, Julius Streicher, the editor of Der Stürmer, was charged with uh, with crimes uh, with hate speech, and uh, and he was a free speech martyr. Becoming a free speech martyr is. Uh, is the way to to draw uh, to draw attention. This is what's happening with Tommy Robinson mm. in in the UK right now. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, they just want to use the, the the avenues we have available, and then if they get their way, if they get in power, well, we've seen what happens when that happens, and we've already played out that experiment. So, uh, you know, we, we've seen that they shut the doors behind them, and there's no more free speech for anyone if they get their way, and I think that's the difference. So, um, And I know that's been difficult even in groups that champion, you know, civil rights and free speech, like the ACLU, I know, has um, been struggling with this, because, of course, back in the 70s or 80s or whenever, they did that with the Skokie, Illinois, um, protecting the speech of the Nazis uh, that were, you know, wanting to march there, and then, of course, we have Charlottesville, and that's the only reason that happened, was because the ACLU defended them in court and gave them the uh, permit to to actually do that protest, but then I I know some people within the organization have been pushing back against that, so it's kind of this internal battle, but it's like, they're, look, they're drawing us up in knots, you know, trying to keep ideologically pure. And meanwhile, there's, you know, people with tiki torches in the streets. So. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the worry for me is not necessarily the people with tiki torches, because I think the way, and this is to segue a little bit, but I think the strategy of the far right is to use the people with tiki torture torches as a foil and mm. say, see, we're not them. Uh, if you look at the messaging of the a lot of the Republican Party right now, you will see classic messages of the far right in the 1990s. In other words, David Duke's strategy is coming to fruition. Like you will see 
people in suits defending heritage, defending, uh, you know, talking about immigration in terrible ways, uh, talking about, uh, you know, obviously uh, Mr. Trump's comments about uh, immigration from shithole countries versus immigration from places like Norway. That that's terrifying talk. That's that's actually very reminiscent of Hitler's comments about the 1924 U.S. Immigration Act. Mm. He said the United States preserves its uh, immigration for for Aryans, and that's that's a good thing they're, mm-hmm. they're constructing. So these are extremely worrisome tropes that we're seeing at the highest level of government, and but. People defend themselves by saying, oh, we're not those crazy people in uniforms on the street. So, in fact, they need the people on the street, the violent skinheads and extremists, because they need them to distinguish themselves. And this was David Duke's original strategy. And what concerns me is we're seeing that strategy come to fruition. We're seeing the mainstreaming of very extremist ideas about Losing our quote culture unquote, uh, and losing uh, where you know what's meant by R here, uh, and losing it, uh, not Native American culture clearly. <laughs> so uh, we're seeing those mainstreamed at the same time as we're seeing sort of uh, strategies used to uh, you know used to defend its mainstream status by saying, well, we're not those people on the street. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And, you know, I, I just keep waiting who's going to be the first one, Laura Ingram or Tucker Carlson on Fox News to say the 14 words on air. I mean, was just, I'm just waiting for it, you know, like we, we're nearly there, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, th- I think the, I think the, they don't really have to. I mean, if mm. I were their tacticians, and their tacticians are very skilled, and I, as you say, my book's about these fascism as a tactic, mm-hmm. not necessarily what happens when people come to power. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, but I, I would keep them as mainstream as possible because we have things being said at the highest levels of government and media that were tropes of white of extremist tropes very recently. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to go through some of the um, points you have in the book about the uh, parts of fascism, and because and, I found it really illuminating. Uh, the first thing you start with was the mythic past, and I think that's a pretty obvious one to start with, because we have Make America Great Again. And it's it's really interesting if you think about that phrase. It's like, it doesn't say when America was great, it's just you're whatever you imagine that to be, and don't think too hard about how that affected you know non-white people during that time, or non-straight people, or any minority group really just you know <laughs> but uh but that's a common idea in this like fascist ideology right it's inevitable it's right. always there mm-hmm. definitely and, and what you have as i show in the book with mussolini with rosenberg with the nazi ideologue rosenberg um with uh they were very explicit with himmler they were very explicit that the rosy path they sketched never was. Mm. They were very explicit that it was a strategy mm-hmm. to make people nostalgic for a mythical path that never was, where the members of where the nation was ethnically pure, where men were men and women were mothers and wives, mm-hmm. and stayed at home. And so you you sketch this fictional path, then you make people feel a yearning for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's like you can only 
think about that if you actually just omit parts of the past from your recollection and, and just think about those only this one uh, type of it. And it, that's that kind of goes to the uh, what is it the lost uh, cause of the South or whatever that mm-hmm. that trope that we've had that's Absolutely. that's caused these monuments to be uh, revered over time and and all that. And it's just basically like rewriting history in real time, and and that's where we're going to remember it, even though it, it didn't even happen that way then. So. Right. The monuments came up way out. Oh, yeah. The end of the Civil War. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, and to achieve that, you know, your next uh, thing you talked about was propaganda, and I know you wrote a whole book about this, but um, can you just quickly define what propaganda is and just how it differentiates from other types of speech? So, uh, so in this chapter, I focus on the characteristic form of propaganda that one finds in moments like this. And we've already discussed it when we discussed mm-hmm. free speech. We discussed free speech being used for illiberal purposes. Free speech being used to attack people in universities and shut their speech down. I mean, in response to me being harassed about my Facebook comment, I deleted my social media presence except for, I deleted my Facebook account. Wow. So, and, uh, you know, I, I don't post anything personal on social media anymore. Uh, So uh, it's very effective. So free speech being used to shut down speech, free speech talk being used to shut down protests. Uh, In in the past, we've seen, uh, and and perhaps also with the Trump administration's touting of free speech at the same time as they're targeting the media and the press, we see free free speech being used to undermine free speech. Hmm. Uh, So these right-wing media organizations, they supposedly are for, for free speech, but what they do is they target professors to get them fired or target professors for severe harassment. So uh, so it's free speech being used to undermine free speech. And that's how I characterize political propaganda. It's one kind of political propaganda. It's an ideal used to undermine that very ideal. So, for instance, take, uh, take states' rights. Uh, states' rights, uh, what, what was meant by states' rights? The liberty for states to do what they... They want it. It was meant to allow states to undermine to, to preserve slavery, mm-hmm. but slavery is an anti-freedom practice. Mm-hmm. So that's liberty used to undermine liberty. Mm-hmm. So uh, another classic example you find every fascist politician, every every fascist political campaign is an anti-corruption campaign. Mm-hmm. Now, of course. Many perfectly decent campaigns are anti-corruption campaigns. Uh, I would say the Sanders campaign was an anti-corruption campaign. But uh, how is it the case that Mr. Trump was able to run an anti-corruption campaign? That should really puzzle people. Mm -hmm. His business dealings were massively corrupt. Mm -hmm. The same is true when you look at the history with the National Socialists. The National Socialist Party was incredibly corrupt. They stole and they stole. They stole Jewish property, Jewish art, Jewish land. They 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 stole. Many of them were just kleptocrats and crooks. But they ran inter, anti, an anti-corruption campaign. What is meant by anti-corruption there? It's not anti-political corruption. It's something very different. 
and it's anti-corruption and the uh, Vladimir Putin runs constantly campaigns on a theme of anti-corruption. This is perhaps the richest man in the world. Mm-hmm. Or his violin player is. I mean, one right. of the two. Exactly. <laughs> right. exactly. So, um, yeah. so yeah. what is meant by anti-corruption there? It just it, it it's anti-corruption in the service of corruption. So uh, similarly, Hitler argued that you know we'll take you know people are constantly saying oh I mean now people are saying national socialism is socialism, which is totally absurd. But every totalitarian many totalitarian countries call themselves democratic. The uh, German Democratic Republic, East Germany, mm. um, the People's Republic of North the People's Democratic uh, many I think North Korea. Uh, many de- many totalitarian regimes call themselves democracies. Similarly, Hitler defends the idea that true German democracy is is dictatorship. <laughs> so it's ideals used against themselves. We see it with the free speech debate we were having. Free mm-hmm. speech used to target, you know, to get people to shut down speech and protest. Mm-hmm. And it always starts kind of with a kernel of truth or a partial truth, but then it's spun in such a, such a way that you take that truth and then kind of, you know, spin it out. And that kind of leads to unreality, which is another thing you talk about. Um, you know, we see that in conspiracy theories that we have, like Pizzagate and QAnon and all that. And, you know, I'm a journalist, so this is super frustrating for me. But uh, how do we combat that sort of thing in this in this environment, you know? Right. So that was my, my very first article for the popular press was in the New York Times in 2011 about birtherism, because being a student of totalitarian regimes, or, you know, certainly having that background, um, I recognized that conspiracy theories are a particularly dangerous sign. Uh, conspiracy theories are very odd constructs, epistemologically, and when they enter into public discourse, they corrode and corrupt it in ways that are very difficult to combat. Um, the philosopher Michael Lynch makes a terrific point about Pizzagate, the 2016 conspiracy mm-hmm. uh, theory that the Democrats were running a uh, a uh, uh, sex or a child sex ring in the basement of Comet Pizza. He says uh, when Edgar Madison Welch appeared at, at Comet Pizza to free the, the supposed enslaved children, he was uh, he was. Uh, immediately labeled by the conspiracy sites, by Alex Jones and others, as uh, a Democratic Party operative. Mm. Now, why is that? Because he believed the conspiracy theory, and that's what you would do if you believed such a horrific charge. You would show up to free the children. Mm-hmm. So, conspiracy theories are not supposed to be believed. They're supposed to, like, they're targeted at a group, and they're meant to sort of smear the group in a way that makes them untrustworthy, completely beyond the pale. And so if you believe the particularities of the conspiracy theory, you're treating it incorrectly. They're meant to marshal groups into an us versus them. And when you find conspiracy dominating, conspiracy theories dominating, the idea behind conspiracy theories is there's, there's a deeper truth. There's a deeper truth that the conspiracy theory funnels, and that's like, say, that the Democrats are evil or that there's an evil deep, deep space, the deep state. And, uh, and it's supposed to raise this kind of level of paranoia. Uh, and they're not really supposed to be believed literally. Mm. Uh, and so fighting them 
is a difficult matter because you can't really counter their literal truth. I mean, even if, as, as, as Michael Lynch's point shows, even if you accept their literal truth, you'll be, you'll be, you're not playing the conspiracy theory game. Mm-hmm. So fighting them is very difficult. Fighting them involves, uh, involves addressing the issues that make people so paranoid in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, in the United States, that's deep-seated resentment at the failures of multiple uh, administrations to deal with, uh, you know, inequality and and, uh, and our collective failure to deal with racism. Right. Well, I mean, that kind of goes hand-in-hand with anti-intellectualism because, you know, this is a little bit different, but the whole flat earth thing that, that has taken hold, it's like, uh, so it's like, I, you know, first of all, it's like, that's not true. It's just demonstrably not true. But second, if it was, why keep it a secret? Why would anyone keep it a secret? And why wouldn't every journalist report on it? That would be the biggest story ever. You know, like, like what's there? Well, that doesn't even that, make sense. Like, that, that, that's how conspiracy theories are a trap for the press. So the trap is as follows. And we see it in country after country. We saw uh-huh. the Polish civic platform party go down because of this trap. Mm. Um, the conspiracy theories function like this. Either the mainstream press doesn't report on them mm. because they're too wacky, mm-hmm. in which case they're part of a conspiracy, sure. or they do report on them, in which case they give the conspiracy theory greater credence mm. and they elevate it. They elevate it, and it's a trap. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you said rightly, as a journalist, it's very frustrating fighting conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories set a trap for uh, for the mainstream press and the general intellectual uh, uh, sort of intellectual, uh, you know, the, the, the status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, you if you don't discuss them, you're vindicating the conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. And if you do discuss them, suddenly it's mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, switching gears a little bit, um, you talk in your hierarchy chapter, which I thought was really interesting with this uh, fascist obsession with nature. Yeah. Uh, it actually reminded me of an article I read. I had an environmental history class in college and uh, talked about how the Nazis were very interested in environmentalism and conservation. It's, it's a weird kind yeah. of uh, marriage. You wouldn't expect it, but it's kind of a strange aspect of all this. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. No. No. The the uh, the so the the hierarchy chapter is about how how uh, in fact an element of fascist thought that says uh, equality is a myth. Mm-hmm. So so why are universities attacked for being liberal? What, why why are liberals attacked? Because liberals believe in equality, and equality, say between men and women, is supposed to be a myth. Equality between races is supposed to be a myth. Mm-hmm. And the natural the natural structure of society is is as hierarchies. So a kernel of fascist thinking is that the 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 natural structure of society is that one group dominates. And so when you find uh, so that's why when you instill that way of thinking in people, then they will see anyone who tries to fight for equality as rather someone who's trying to take over. So when people think in terms of hierarchy, then they think that a struggle for equality, say black equality in the United States, is really a struggle for dominance. Mm. Or in the KKK ideology, uh, you know, it's Jews who are behind the struggle for black equality to undermine white 
dominance. Mm-hmm. But, but that's how you set up the idea that struggles for equality or liberalism <laughs> are really struggles for dominance of the minority group and threaten the majority group. Yeah, well, that leads perfectly. And the next thing I was going to talk about is just the victimhood. It's just so frustrating. It's like Republicans control all three branches of government. They control most of the state houses in this country. But if you listen to their media, they're under siege. It's always like, you know, they're the victim. They're always the ones help. But it's like, it's almost like fundamental to their identity. It doesn't mean it doesn't even have any relation to how much power they actually have. Yeah. They have all the power, but they're still like, you know, it's like, what are you crying about? Like, and, and it gets worse and worse. Yeah. And of course, of course, we find all dominant group. I mean, this is a very powerful weapon. The idea of the dominant group as a victim. Any any sign of encroaching equality is taken as an attack on the dominant group. And so any struggle for liberal equality is taken as this existential threat. And so the goal, I mean, this goes back to Plato's Republic. The goal is to make the dominant group that has the most votes feel like victims and be an existential terror of their culture being destroyed. And, and we know that when white Americans are told that in 2042, the United States will become majority minority. They become increasing, they become much more conservative on a variety of issues, including more in favor of increased defense spending. Seriously. <laughs> so, uh, so to making the dominant group feel like victims of equality is, is a time-tested, philosophically long-discussed, uh, feature of human society. Uh, and, you know, we see that with many, though not all, of Trump supporters who feel that, uh, who uh, many of whom feel that whites are the most persecuted uh, ethnic group in America, that Christianity is the most persecuted religion. Uh, the victimhood of the group in power is uh, when that's weaponized, it is a terrifying force. Mm-hmm. And it's such projection, too, because they call anyone that criticizes them, oh, you're just a snowflake. You can't take it. It's like you fall apart every five minutes over everything. <laughs> like, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Existential threats everywhere. Yeah. Anyone exactly. talking about, you know, anyone, you know, defending, uh, you know, trying to say, well, maybe we should have some, you know, we, we should have uh, some non-white authors taught in our great books program. And it's an existential threat to Shakespeare and the dominance of Western civilization. Um, you know, yeah. very. Uh, you know, the fact that there are uh, non non Christians uh, in salient places, Jews or Muslims or Hindus, makes it that you can't say Merry Christmas again. Mm-hmm. You can't say Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah. such a tragedy. Um, but um, yeah, so this you know the thing that drives me crazy is the obsession with law and order. Like Trump, he's always like he's old and helps himself up at this champion of you know law and order but it's like anybody that could hold him accountable from law enforcement they're, they're you know the deep state and they're against them but it's it's just this dichotomy it just drives me mad it's just like uh you say you're for this but anytime it actually pops its head up you're you're kind of trying to whack it down so it's it's totally you know antithetical to what you're trying to say. So again, this links to the use of the notion of propaganda mm-hmm. as an ideal used to undermine itself. Mm-hmm. Law and order 
uh, when Mr. Trump uses it, often does not mean law and order. Mm. It means I'm right, you're wrong. Mm. You're either loyal to me, that's law and order, or you're dis or you're not loyal, in which case you're some kind of violation of law and order. Mm-hmm. And uh, law and order actually does not mean loyalty to a leader. It means fealty to the facts. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so when law and order is used to undermine reality, to undermine law and order, uh, to, to mean instead loyalty to the leader, then you're undermining law and order uh, mm-hmm. by using the vocabulary of law and order. Uh, but also, law and order, as used, for instance, in the currently toxic national debate about immigration, mm-hmm. uh, is used to, to make non-white immigrants seem in and of themselves violations of law and order. Mm-hmm. So when people talk about illegal uh, immigration, uh, when they talk about, they, they label people as criminals. Now, uh, and then you say, well, why are they criminals? Well, they broke a law. Well, if somebody runs after a bus, they're not a runner. Um, you know, uh, violating an immigration law, uh, you know, a criminal is someone who has some regular inherent propensity to violate laws. We know that immigrants, both legal uh, and illegal, those who, who did not come through the legal system, uh, violate law, uh, are, are much, uh, do much less, commit much, many fewer violent crimes. They're much more law, law abiding than, uh, than native pop, than native non-immigrant population. Oh, of course. Yeah. If everything's on the line all the time, you're going to be careful all the time when you're there. It just makes sense. It doesn't even like track with what they're trying to say. Yeah. If I was in a foreign country, I would follow every law to a T. I would never speed, you know, like, <laughs> and also yeah. uh, people who make that sacrifice to to come to a country for a better life as as our country you know has long represented that promise of a better life for so many mm-hmm. uh, when people make that journey and make that sacrifice for their children uh, they tend to be uh, speaking as the child of two refugees <laughs> they tend to be people who uh, who uh, have made you know are 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 committed to uh, to to I would say you know the best of American values. Oh yeah, and I've known several people that have immigrated here, and on the whole, they're actually more conservative than most Americans I know. Strangely, right. and it's so it's so weird because these are the people they're trying to demonize, and it's like if you could just get past your like racism or whatever's yeah. keeping you from this, these people are actually your constituents. You know, right. like although conservatism, yeah. you know, conservatism. Uh, and that shows that what we're dealing with now is not conservatism. Right. We're, uh, the the white supremacist elements of the current incarnation of the Republican Party are not traditional conservatism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you, I, I don't think the conservative liberal distinction is very useful anymore to mm-hmm. think about current social reality. I would expect many social conservatives to be uh, incensed by the administration's uh, immigration policies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but on the other hand, you see those polls about the child separation policy, and it's like most Republicans who are still calling themselves Republicans at this point say it's it's okay, and it's like, wow, okay. I guess if you tolerated everything up till now, what won't you tolerate? Well, there was a very important article by Fenton O'Toole called Trial Balloons for Fascism. Mm, I saw that, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
where he said the goal of the child separations was to see how it would float among the hardcore, uh, among certain, among the support, the president's supporters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and unfortunately, um, it polled very well. Yeah. And so that tells them that there's a certain kind of brutality they can get away with. Mm-hmm. It's a very dangerous, dangerous sign. Oh, yeah. And they're not just going after illegal immigrants. I mean, this is always how it works. It's like they'll take whoever the low-hanging fruit, whoever think they can get first. But then it's like now Stephen Miller, whoever wants to go after illegal immigrants, yeah. trying to reverse it, it's like, and now they're like, oh, should citizenship be a birthright? You know, 14th yeah. Amendment? Who knows? You know, let's think then, about it. And then they're, they're looking at denaturalizing uh-huh. people. Uh, yeah. or minor errors. Uh, it is a ter- of course, you know, I mean, Martin Niemöller, first they came for the socialists, yep. and I did not speak up because they didn't come. I mean, people are, I mean, that history is there for a reason. It's written for a reason. Mm-hmm. It, you know, Hannah Arendt wrote Origins of Totalitarianism as a document to teach us about certain signs. Mm-hmm. And we have these very salient um markers from historical struggles with totalitarianism and we need to look at them mm-hmm. and what's happening now is uh, with immigration as they as they increasingly try to target ever larger segments of our population um, is, is terrifying because everyone is everyone under such conditions people become afraid and they say well at least it's not me Mm-hmm. And and then they broaden the circle of the targets. At some point, they get to dissidents, to socialists. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it, it's a very predictable pattern for sure. Yeah. Um, and kind of your next point that you talk about in the book relates to this too: is the sexual anxiety. Uh, I think the idea that black and brown men are coming for your pure white daughters, uh, and that the homosexuals are going to recruit your sons, has been a strain on American thought for a very long time. But it's definitely weaponized. Uh, especially when we talk about immigrants and things like that, it's like the uh, the white race is under attack. So, so they say. Yeah. So, so at the, uh, a core, a kernel of fascist ideology is pure purity. Mm. And so, what you try to do in the mythic past, the nation was pure. Uh, so, purity is this is this element, and purity comes with its opposite disgust. And so you try to raise disgust about mixing, about violating purity. And uh, and that's sort of a very visceral thing. I mean, it was weaponized against, for, for instance, we see it with certain reactions to homosexuality, feelings of disgust, uh, and which is the basis of uh, homophobic politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it is just a regular, I mean, the, uh, feature of fascist politics that they target intermarriage, that they raise sexual anxiety and panic about uh, about uh, miscegenation, to use the American term, about mixing between races. The Nuremberg Laws, in the very first instance, targeted uh, Aryan, Jewish, uh, non-Jewish and Jewish intermarriage and illegalized them. Mm. So why is that? Why were the salient, most extreme laws about intermarriage? Uh, they used, of course, um, my book. My book is a lot about the U.S. roots of European fascism, mm-hmm. what in the United States impacted European fascism, which makes it not surprising that such a politics is successful here. And as my colleague Jim Whitman's book, Hitler's American Model, shows, the Nuremberg Laws were based on our anti-miscegenation laws. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And you see this all across the world. The crisis in Rohingya, perhaps the worst ethnic cleansing and probably genocide since the Second World War, is, uh, well, also, I mean, one of the worst, is uh, is the Rohingya people in, uh, in Myanmar. And it started off with a panic about rape. Like three Rohingya men raped a ranking woman. And that created this panic that led to the confinement of the entire Rohingya population in a bunch of villages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see this in India. I, I have an interview coming out in the Times of India tomorrow about the uh, weaponization of sexual anxiety against Muslim men. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muslims are repeatedly branded as uh, rapists, uh, as rape threats against Hindu women, and there's even there's even been a panic that I discussed in the book called the the Hindu love jihad, which is a conspiracy theory that Muslims were trying to, uh, you know, Muslims were trying to preach, Muslim uh, caliphs were trying to tell their flocks to marry Hindu women and, and convert them. Mm. So this, this, and this raises sort of, it's both, this raises existential fear. Uh, it's, what it's, its function is, is, is it's, it's to create this fear among, among the dominant groups, men in the United States, white Christian men say, mm-hmm. um, that they're not doing their job to protect their wives, mm-hmm. their women, their women. Mm-hmm. And then it raises the value of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Like that's supposed to be what they're doing. And patriarchy feeds into the fascist ideology of a strong leader who's the father of his nation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's interesting you mentioned patriarchy because it's like they, they put uh, women up on a pedestal until they get in power. And then they're like, all right, just go make the babies now. <laughs> right. Well, well, being put up on a pedestal is being objectified. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You're not a person anymore. Yeah. Um, but it's the, what you're talking about relates to this idea of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, I grew up in a small town in southern Indiana, and I definitely saw this anti-city feeling permeating kind of everything, and this idea that this pastoral life is the only bastion of morality, and then, you know, the cities are just this wild, you know, rumpus of, you know, horrible things, uh, but it's like, I knew, I mean, you just look at the Facebook postings of the people I went to high school with who never went to college, and it's like, yeah, you guys, you got something to answer for, answer for too, um, but it's so frustrating to see someone like Trump ensnare these people, because he's like, like the epitome of what they're like saying that they don't like and right. somehow he's flipped it on them. You know, I don't even understand how that happens. <laughs> well, uh, so in the chapter I discuss how the politics of small, the, the, the real values, Sarah Palin brought this politics oh, yeah. to the fore. Oh, we yeah. talk about the real America Ugh. versus the cities. The cities are always, in fascist politics, they're where, where uh, the minorities live. So chapter two of Mein Kampf, my time in Vienna, Hitler says, talks about being in Vienna, and he said, talks about you know all the foreign elements and the Jews, the Jews, and more Jews. And, uh, of course, in the United States, uh, when uh, Mr. Trump ran for president, he repeatedly talked about the inner cities, where, of course, where our 
marginalized minority, you know, where our supposed, you know, our, our targeted minority population, the African Americans, is set to live the uh, the inner cities uh, across the world. It's the, the the hated minority populations live in the cities, and it, it's not always the case, but it's very often the case. But the, the cities are the place where there's this interbreeding happening between different groups, uh, and it's the site of homosexuality, which is a huge target uh, in fascist politics mm-hmm. of decadence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, there's all these, and then it's connected to this myth of hard work. The mm-hmm. idea is that in the cities, like what you, what you found with Nazi ideology is that the city, like real hard work was rural work on mm-hmm. farms mm-hmm. and banking was laziness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that goes exactly into what I was going to ask you about next. Um, you know, it's it's like we connect in a society to your worth to how much you can work, and I just feel like there's so many things we could move forward on as a society, like universal health care, and I feel like a universal basic income should be talked about, but I feel like these things are never going to get off the ground because people feel like, oh, you didn't earn that, and it's like, just being alive, isn't that enough? Like, can I just have, like, the things I need to be alive? <laughs> like, right. Um, but it's, it's fundamental to fascist ideology that that you'd think that that you have to like work i mean that you talk about this uh, work will set you free you know yes. the idea from uh, the, the concentration camps and that and that you uh you know you have to you have to earn your keep and otherwise you don't deserve anything so yeah the uh the at the heart of fa- another kernel of fascist ideology is social darwinism mm. i mean these 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 elements of fascism are all connected social darwinism is connected to hierarchy hierarchy of value uh, so the idea that you know society is just about winners and it's 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 just about winning and losers deserve what they get mm-hmm. and winning and losing is is struggle is the result of struggle that's why Hitler's book is called My Struggle mm-hmm. Mein Kampf uh, you know uh, you uh, you gain your value by winning and struggle and that is at the core of. Uh, libertarian ideology. Mm. And now libertarianism is, of course, not fascism because libertarianism at its best is a philosophy of individual freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascism, however, wep- uses, exploits uh, uh, this idea of struggle and moves it to groups. Fascism mm-hmm. says certain groups are more worthy than other groups. Mm-hmm. And that's not a libertarian that's antithetical to, live, to true libertarianism. Right. But at the core of both, it's a doctrine that's that, that is inimical to, uh, to uh, my favorite versions of classical liberalism, say, that descend from Kant, which is that, uh, and descend ultimately from the Christian faith, that uh, all human beings' lives have value. Mm-hmm. And all humans have intrinsic dignity. And work, your capacity for hard work, uh, that does not that does not elevate you on a scale of value over others. Mm. And we had better come to terms with this because soon robots are going to do all the work. Exactly. So people better come to terms with it. Mm -hmm. They better face straightforwardly that this is a false theory of value. Even if you're attracted to it, it's not going to make much sense. Mm -hmm. It's going to result in only the people who create the robots being worth anything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, uh, this opens up a whole other thing, but, like, you see, like, the map of, like, the most, like, populous jobs in each state and it's like 30 something states are like truck driver and the minute that they figure out how to do automated trucking and that 
that's over. You know, yeah. like they're going to figure out how to do this, and then they're going. You're all going to be out of work. All the right. good paying jobs. So it's it's vital to say, and then and then you look at. So it's vital to 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 say first of all. This is an ideology that doesn't fit the modern world anymore. Mm-hmm. That value comes from work. Yeah. And secondly, it's vital to challenge the ideology. It wasn't plausible in the first place. Mm-hmm. It underlay the Nazi T4 program, the mm-hmm. elimination of disabled people. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, uh, people who are uh, incapable of work for ver- for for various reasons, uh, you know, are no less valued. But if you think that value only comes from struggle, then Philosophically, you're going to have a very hard time justifying taking care of the old, the infirm, the disabled, many disabled people. So, uh, so these are these are really uh, existential problems that we as a society have to face. I mean, uh, on the one hand, the ideology that you're you're of value only insofar as you can struggle and work and you defeat others and you're a winner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, leads to, you know, leads to very easily to people thinking that certain groups, it's, it's how you form out groups. People quickly then move to something that, that is not part of that ideology, but seems to too often go with it, that certain groups are more worth, worthy of value. And then what is struggle? Like, you know, uh, what is, you know, you find people saying that, Certain jobs aren't real work. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, <laughs> what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then, and then, once people are seen as lazy, then they're seen as valueless, and you know, and then you can do anything to them. Yeah, there's a real like I don't know I, I I like I said I grew up in the Midwest and I feel like there is a real strain of like I put I kill myself at my job I work sixty hours a week it's like I make minimum wage and I work three jobs and it's like I should you like is that okay like yeah. but it's like, it's a very like Midwestern idea so it's like these leaders like you know Trump talking about I want to bring the coal jobs back it's like who wants to work in a coal mine like <laughs> and Trump in the meantime it takes like enormous amount of time uh, playing golf. And, oh, yeah. So, right. uh, so uh, whereas he partially criticized President Obama sure. for uh, for taking any days playing golf, uh, but you see, he was black, so right. <laughs> that was different, right? Because there's somehow an ideology that just by coming being from a certain group, you automatically are a hard worker. Yeah. Right. Uh, so the pro- problem is this: this ideology can be that w- that value comes only from victory and free market struggle or other kinds of struggle uh, is uh, is uh, you know can be too easily exploited. Mm-hmm. It's it's not consistent with the modern world. It can be too easily exploited. Um, and why believe it in the first place? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, we're getting close to an hour, so I want to make sure I, I get this in here before we go. Uh, kind of, you know, coming to the end of, of what we're talking about here, we see, um, you know, at least in the modern politics, we have Republicans in the Congress, you know, covering for Trump. They're worse than complicit at this point. They're accomplices. They're, they've stolen one Supreme Court seat, for example, and then they're going to about to put someone else on. 
on the Supreme Court who doesn't think the president can commit crimes or something, which is very convenient. Um, and, you know, I, we still see Democrats sitting on their hands waiting for them to return to civility. They feel like they're there to show them how to act. Right. Um, and it's it's frustrating because you can go one of two ways with it, right? We can we can try to, like, play their game and, and race to the bottom and add, you know, next time we get in power, we'll add three more Supreme Court seats, you know, just to balance things out, but then they'll do the, the next thing, and then we'll split California into five states so that they can have ten senators, and, you know, yeah, right. like, it's like, it's a race to the bottom, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like what's happening now is a good strategy either, because they, you know, it's like, I don't know if you read Calvin and Hobbes, the, you know, comic strip, but there was the concept of Calvin Ball, it's the game that has no rules, and it changes every time you play it, and, you know, they just never play the same game twice, and that's what the Republicans are playing, and, you know, the, we've got the Democrats over here consulting the rule book, and it's like, does the rule book matter anymore? Does this, you know, should we? Right. So I don't know. What, what do you? Which way do you think they should go? Well, one of the huge problems with my thinking is is I don't have the best strategies about what to do. <laughs> yeah. You're I just mean, over here identifying the problems. Yeah, I'm very good at identifying the problem. That's the first thing to see. That here again, we have the structure of propaganda. Civility is used in support of incivility. Uh-huh. So the so you know you have uh, Senator Hatch saying, "Well, I hope that my colleagues put partisanship aside mm-hmm. when you know even <laughs> you know the Republicans uh, massively uh, uh, you know I mean putting partisanship aside in Supreme Court nominations. Mm. My God, <laughs> uh, so uh, so." You know, when you're winning, then suddenly you go back, you you demand that, you know, civility and nobody plays unfair. Um, So, so, you know, the cynicism is breathtaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the problem is, is that... Uh, the corruption charge made by, say, Mr. Trump when he was running for office, uh, you know, was, oh, the whole system is corrupt. So then the whole idea of the system, and that's the attack on the deep state as well, so the idea is there are no rules. Um, but then what do you do when the opposition is like, they, they run things and like, oh, you guys better follow the rules. Um, it's it's a very tricky situation. I mean, I think Timothy Snyder in his book, 20 Rules, uh, says, you know, uh, follow the rules of your institutions uh, to protect things. Um, we saw President Obama do that. Uh, President Obama was incredibly conciliatory, although he... Uh, he did use executive power. He was forced to use executive power, right. but he did overuse executive power. On the other hand, I'm not really sure. So what do you do when when partisan politics has made conciliation into folly? Um, I mean, one thing that I urge is for people to recognize that conciliation is, in fact, a strength. Like, people are like, oh, that person is cowardly. They didn't stand by their principles. Well, in fact, it's really easy to, like, block your ears and say, no, 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 no. What's hard is to say, okay, let's meet halfway. Mm-hmm. So it's a strength, not a weakness. It's a democratic strength. But we're kind of beyond that because I think many in the Republican Party have, as you say, shown their hand that, you know, it doesn't matter. It's winning at all costs. This is, again, the ideology of winning that's so toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when winning is the only thing. So how do you fight that? How do you fight that? I mean, again, it's a conundrum. On the one hand, if you enter into it, if you say, okay, winning is the only thing, we're going to cheat to and do, then you you become anti-democratic in your strategies to preserve democracy. On the other hand, if you stick, if you're not in power uh, and you've been dispossessed by by cheating, essentially, uh, then, as in the case of the Supreme Court uh, uh, nominations, uh, how do you um, how do you get back if you stick to the rules? Mm-hmm. So that's the there there you have the paradox we as a country face, and unfortunately, I don't think history gives us uh, many easy solutions here or yeah. answers. Well, on that cheery note, is there anything else I didn't uh, ask you about that you want to get in there before we go? No, this is this this covered. Uh, the, I mean, the, the full stage. I think it's important to see, and this is why I wrote the book, uh, that our moment is not historically unique. We have to see it in context, and we have to see the conundrums that we face as conundrums that other societies have faced, and uh, and that and they haven't been hopeless. They haven't been so. So people have dealt with it. They've dealt with it by appealing to our best values and our best instincts. I mean, you know, abolitionism worked uh, at a time when, you know, everyone thought slavery was the natural way. Somehow, like 30, 40 years of fighting uh, for empathy worked. So so we can get out of our, of our problems, and mm-hmm. history teaches us that, too. Right, and there's things that seem insurmountable until they suddenly disappear in a wisp of smoke, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Um, but uh, last question, I always ask this, what music have you been listening to lately? Well, in the past few days, Aretha Franklin. No, of course, yeah, yeah. absolutely, good answer. <laughs> what else? Definitely, for sure. Um, well, I, I feel like I could talk to you for a whole lot longer, but I appreciate you taking so much time, and uh, hope we can talk again soon. And everyone should read your book. I, like I said, I found it very valuable and uh, frightening, but uh, also, <laughs> also, it definitely brought together a lot of ideas that I think are very important for us right now. So, thank you so much, Rob. That was cool. Great. Yeah. great. All right. Have a good day. You too. All right. Thanks. Bye.
If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.